Hello listeners, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to another episode of Cloud9Fin. I'm your host, Will Cager-Smith, and today we're talking about subprime auto lending, and I'm joined by our reporter, William Hoffman, who has plenty of experience covering that market. So thanks for joining us, William. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Good to be in person. Yeah, so correct me if I'm wrong, but some time ago, you actually used to write for a publication that focused pretty much exclusively on auto finance, right? Yeah, it was uh, it was pretty fun. Uh, I wrote for an auto finance trade publication before I started writing about capital markets, uh, even moderated a few sort of industry panels at conferences in my day. Nice. So do you have like a favorite auto finance issuer? You know, I think it's uh, it was an interesting space. I think one of the my favorites was Consumer Portfolio Services. It's a small sort of public auto finance credit that's been around for a long time. The CEO, Charles Bradley, was always kind of a character, uh, really good, like direct poignant answers for journalists and even on like earnings calls. All right. Nice. Yeah, I used to cover the ABS market and I remember subprime being a big topic there in the years after the financial crisis. And there was a lot of talk about sketchy lending and bad collection practices, cars being shut off remotely, stopping people from getting to work, or even stories that I think were vehemently denied by the industry of, of cars being shut off like on the motorway mid-drive. Mid um, but yeah, no no shortage of, of horror stories in that space. Yeah, definitely. And these are companies that are typically kind of part of the structured finance uh, lending base and in, in more auto ABS market. But there, there are also a handful that tap the corporate high yield bond market that could be, you know, really challenged in the coming year. Right. Yeah. So that's the angle we wanted to focus on in the piece that you wrote earlier this week. So there are captive lenders like Ford Motor Credit that are pretty regular high yield issuers, but they don't really focus so much on the subprime space. So that's what we kind of honed in on in that piece. So the big subprime lenders in the high yield space are Credit Acceptance Corp and Exeter Finance, basically. So can you explain why these are companies that high yield investors should maybe have an eye on at the moment? Yeah, so both of these companies really illustrate some of the current challenges in the space. Credit Acceptance is a really well-known operator uh, in the auto finance space and has really steady cash flows. Uh, but it's also plagued by, you know, headline risks uh, that make it difficult for some investors to really sleep soundly with the investment at night. Mm -hmm. Like the, the CFPB has been involved in there a little bit, right? Yeah. So most recently, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and New York Attorney General sued uh, credit acceptance, you know, basically alleging that the company had hid the cost of auto loans from customers. Right. Um, a claim I'm sure they're going to be fighting. And uh, this isn't the first time the company has uh, been in the CFPB spotlight. Uh, while those actions, uh, you know, make its stock price pretty erratic, uh, you know, trading levels uh, of its debt are, you know, actually pretty steady through all these headline risks. Yeah, kind of surprisingly so, given some of the negative headlines, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely seen as a, a pretty solid credit. Uh, there was actually a quote in our story, I think, from a portfolio manager who said that credit acceptance was one of the best companies he'd looked at in the entire high yield space, right? Yeah, it's it's really uh, kind of on, you know, one end of the spectrum here. It's a good solid credit. You know, it has a lot of cash flows. Um, on the other hand is sort of uh, extra finance, uh, which, you know, has these same headline risks, but also seems to uh, take them more on the chin than than uh, credit acceptance does. Uh, you know, recently, the notes have been trading down into the 60s. Right? Yeah, that's pretty nasty. And this is a privately held company, correct? 
Yeah, the uh, $400 million 2029s uh, are kind of what I'm talking about here. They were issued in 2021 to fund Exeter's buyout uh, by Warburg Pincus. And they've, uh, you know, barely traded above par since, since that buyout. Yeah, I was looking at the price chart earlier. So these are these are unsecured bonds. And I think they traded above par for maybe a few days after the issue. But since then, it's been a sort of impressively straight line that goes down and to the right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, there's, you know, potential trouble here. Last month, S&P downgraded its corporate family rating to B minus from B, mm -hmm. uh, dropped the rating on the notes two notches to mid triple C. Uh, the rating agency said Exeter's loss allowance is lower and that leverage is on the rise as delinquencies and charge-offs start to increase. Right. So these are two companies in the space with maybe slightly differing outlooks, but they're both subject to similar pressures in the industry. And in a nutshell, that's basically the economic backdrop and the potential for losses to increase. So can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I don't know if you've uh, been to a dealership lately, but to uh, buy a car is pretty prohibitively expensive these days. I live days. in New York, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is my uh, Midwest uh, expertise coming out right. here. <laughs> uh, not only have car prices really, like, soared, uh, you know, during the pandemic here, uh, supply chain issues uh, and, and, and all that nonsense, but also interest rates on these loans are substantially higher. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, consumers have largely blown through the pandemic savings uh, they had built up during, you know, this uh, during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, the economic indicators kind of suggest that, you know, consumers are pulling back on spending, which means probably fewer uh, loans going forward. Right. Although there's there's been a bit of uh, data recently to show that people are uh, sort of un unpulling back on spending. Right. There's There's been a, a little bit of um movement on uh retail sales and, and that kind of thing so it's kind of it's not going in a straight line but completely take the point that the these concerns about a recession and people kind of pulling back potentially uh that all spells some trouble for lenders that originate loans in terms of credit quality so yeah how does how does that read through to the way that people choose auto loans and the way that those companies underwrite them. Yeah, it's kind of a tricky environment depending on where you are in the auto finance space. So if you're lending to someone who, you know, has a slightly older, older vehicle and it's, you know, maybe they're just looking for for an upgrade, um, maybe they, in this economic environment, they just push that off longer mm -hmm. um, until things become more affordable again. Um, you know, that means lower loan volumes for some of these lenders right. if you're lending to that kind of consumer. On the other hand, um, you know, if your vehicle is on its last legs and you need something to get to work, uh, that co consumer really has no other choice. They need some sort of uh, financing mm -hmm. um, and that consumer is going to be stretched into a more expensive vehicle, you know, at a higher rate at a longer term. And all that's really a recipe for higher losses for, for those auto lenders. Right, right. But then at the same time, used car prices are kind of coming off their peak. And if you're thinking about the collateral for these loans, that that means that the uh, the recovery that you get if the borrower defaults is is potentially lower. So there's a lot going on here, a lot of kind of cross currents. But essentially, this is these concerns are already having an impact, right, in terms of charge offs and delinquency rates for some of these lenders. Yeah, I, you do see it sort of take a while for these numbers to start to start to show up on on the books and and 
Um, I think we'll see that in the coming months, but already we can see that lenders are starting to see higher delinquencies, higher charge-offs, um, and it's. I think that's going to continue here. Okay, so borrowing costs are expensive, and that's leading to more losses. Also, cars are historically very expensive, although used car prices have come down a little bit. I suppose in this kind of environment, the safe bet would be to pull back a bit and only lend to higher quality borrowers to avoid those losses. And there are some examples of that, right? Like non-specialist lenders pulling back from from auto lending. Yeah. So like some of the, um, you know, maybe some of the banks are like higher uh, quality lenders that are that are really targeting that prime consumer like Citizens Financial. They are kind of winding down their auto lending operations. Um, you know, there's some metrics that show that other lenders that are in that space are really pulling back. Mm -hmm. But that's not true for everyone, right? Like some of these specialized subprime lenders might see this economic environment slightly differently. Yeah, you can kind of see this as an opportunity, you know, as those lenders are other lenders are pulling back. Um, you know, some of the specialty independent lenders can step in uh, to that void and uh, kind of capture more market share. Um, in fact, credit acceptance is is one of these that kind of sees that opportunity. Uh, their chief treasury officer, Doug Busk, uh, you know, seemed really excited about uh, the growth of the business when we talked to him. And, uh, you know, he thinks that, you know, more subprime consumers could, uh, could you know, turn to credit acceptance in, in sort of the months ahead. Because they might get left behind by the other lenders pulling back, right? Yeah. Uh, credit acceptance has done this before. You know, they've, uh, during the financial crisis, uh, it doubled net income from 2007 to 2009. Um, and they have a lot of confidence in, you know, their debt collection practices, and they think they're kind of poised to expand. Right. So they're, they're a specialist in the subprime space. They know how to do this in a great level of detail, and they have a lot of experience, basically. Right, right. And, uh, you know, one potential implication of that growth is that it could require more funding in the capital markets. Mm -hmm. So credit acceptance has an upcoming, you know, 2024 maturity that Bus said he'd like to refinance, you know, quote unquote, opportunistically this year. Mm -hmm. And he noted that uh, as the company's balance sheet grows, you know, access to the corporate bond market is going to become even more important, you know, alongside some of the ABS issuance that they do. Right, that makes sense. Okay, so that's credit acceptance. And then what about Exeter? Because clearly, just just from looking at the bond price, that credit is a, a different kettle of fish, at least in terms of, you know, ratings and, and credit worthiness, basically. Right, exactly. You know, Exeter is a good example of sort of private equity backed subprime auto in, in the space. You know, Blackstone bought it over a decade ago um, and for a long time was like looking to offload this investment. Mm hmm. Um, with really little success. Um, it wasn't until 2021 when Warburg, uh, you know, bought Exeter and uh, funded the buyout in the bond market. Right. And since Warburg bought the company, or at least in the in the past few months, there have been increasing concerns about their asset quality and their overall financial stability. Yeah, exactly. Although I think, you know, you have a little bit more detail on sort of the ABS side from your background. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting and a bit wonky and it and some of it took me back to my, my days covering ABS. So basically the the downgrade, the, the recent S&P downgrade of, of the corporate family rating and also the, the senior unsecured notes happened after Exeter changed the way it classifies the loans it makes. So it now counts them as held for sale rather than held for investment, basically. Right. So there's some sort of accounting change here, but like, what does that 
mean and why did it lead to a downgrade yeah it's a good question and often with this kind of thing it's a lot to do with individual rating agency methodologies so as far as i can tell for example moody's hasn't followed up with a similar downgrade but basically what happened is this so when exeter reclassified its loans as held for sale rather than held for investment one benefit for the company was that this reclassification meant it didn't have to hold as much cash in reserve against those loans to protect against losses. Mm -hmm. So that frees up some extra liquidity for the company. But the flip side is that S&P counts those cash reserves basically as equity. And the way they calculate leverage for Exeter is as a ratio of debt to total adjusted total equity. So fewer cash reserves means is in few, less cash held as reserves against losses on the loans. Even though the cash is still at the company, the fact that it's held in a different box means adjusted total equity goes down, but the company's debt stays the same. So leverage goes up. And in this case, at least by S&P's calculation, leverage went to like over nine times, which is way above their downside threshold of is in a downside rating threshold of roughly six and a half times so it was a really big jump in leverage and that's one of the things that led to the downgrade yeah obviously people have different you know thoughts on what the rating agencies you know do with their their ratings and their calculations of leverage and such yeah. but you know i think at the at the end of it it's you know exeter's charge-offs rate is increasing uh, that's a concern for investors in the company's auto abs notes you know used car prices are coming down off of peaks um and that means the recovery value uh for those investors is going to be lower in a default scenario yeah so there's concern here for the abs investors which are in one part of the capital structure and there's also concern for the you know the the um senior unsecured investors in uh exeter's high yield high yield bonds so s p actually downgraded some of exeter's abs notes based on the concerns that you mentioned about rising charge-offs and that kind of thing so one impact of that is that that's probably going to make the abs market less of a reliable source of funding for exeter or change at the very least kind of change the the cost of, of financing themselves in that market at a time when Exeter needs as much market access as it can get. And the unsecured market is also probably not an option for Exeter right now because it's existing senior unsecured notes are trading at a, you know, a 14.5% yield to worst. So S&P reckons that the company is going to have to rely on secured financing markets going forward. And that means the outlook for unsecured investors could be pretty grim, basically. Yeah, I mean, so kind of a tough situation for Warburg here, um, especially as S&P expects, you know, unencumbered assets to be materially less than the value of those unsecured notes. Right, exactly. Which explains why the notes are trading in the 60s. But I want to flip it back to you here, because there are some other PE backed auto lenders out there. And it seems like there are maybe some opportunities for those lenders to either sell to strategic acquirers or maybe look for kind of other um, sale opportunities, other other exit strategies? Yeah, in the article, we uh, highlighted several situations like that. You know, one of the largest is flagship credit acceptance, mm -hmm. which is owned by uh, Perella Weinberg and Innovatus uh, Capital Partners. Mm -hmm. uh, that company had hoped to IPO uh, sort of prior to the pandemic and is now kind of repositioning as uh, what we'd call like a direct lender. 
Yeah, so what does a direct lender mean in the auto finance space? Yeah, it's like kind of an old school, like uh, update of an old school system, right? Like for years, you'd go to the dealership and you'd be like presented with various options for loans based on whatever lending partners that that dealership happened to work with. Um, but now with, you know, access to the internet, you can go find a loan online. Um, you know, people, you know, basically shop directly for the that auto financing before they even step inside the dealership, uh, get approved for that loan. Um, and flagship is, uh, you know, one of those uh, players out there that does that. Right. So you get approved for a loan online and then you go and buy a car, mm -hmm. which is which is different from captive auto lending. But on that note, there are also some PE backed auto lenders that have been bought by dealerships and OEMs to become captive lenders, right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, CGI Financial uh, is one that was bought by uh, the dealership chain AutoNation. Mm -hmm. There's also First Investors. They were uh, uh, acquired by the OEM Stellantis, which is, uh, you know, probably better known from uh, you know, Fiat Chrysler Automobiles and right. uh, com combined with the French auto giant PSA. So mm -hmm. uh, sort of a new player in the space looking to, to add a lending component. And then there's, uh, what's the other one, Vroom? Yeah, Vroom uh, is sort of online dealership uh they bought united auto credit corp uh from prime uh pinebrook partners to become its captive financing arm room of course is you know kind of competitor to carvana but i don't think uh, carvana will be making any acquisitions in this space anytime soon <laughs> well never say never but yeah that's probably a safe bet but carvana is a whole other can of beans so let's not get into that right now <laughs> Let's wrap it up here for today. But William, thanks so much for your help on this one. Yeah, thanks for having me on. All right, well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks for tuning in. And please get in touch on team at ninefin.com if you have any feedback on this episode. And don't forget to check in next week with my London colleagues. I'll be back the week after that. So until then, as always, take care.